0: This business meeting of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Today we are considering two Foreign Service Officer promotion lists and 11 nominations for critical positions, including our ambassadors to Germany, India, Pakistan, Serbia, the Holy See, the UN Human Rights Council, the UN Economic and Social Council, and the International Atomic Energy Agency. The CEO of the Millennium Challenge Corporation, director of the United States Trade and Development Agency and the director of the Africa African Development Bank. Before we turn to these nominations I'd like to acknowledge the hard work that went into getting dozens of State Department and USAID nominees confirmed before the Senate's December recess. I'm very pleased that more than 85 capable experienced individuals now fill crucial national security positions and we are witnessing the real-life impact that these confirmations are having. We now have ambassadors in place in Poland and at the European Union as we are engaging with European allies to deter Russia from further aggression, an ambassador in Bosnia and Herzegovina where threats to the rule of law and democracy grow by the day, and more than 14 confirmed ambassadors in Africa. This is what it looks like to have the United States at the table and to have meaningful representation throughout the world. As we begin this new year, I am hopeful that the struggle it took to confirm these nominees will not be repeated. We have much more work to do. Over 55 nominees are still pending before this committee, and many challenges around the world that are awaiting them. As I have said many times before this committee and on the Senate floor, prolonged vacancies are not in our interest. They undermine our national security, hinder our leadership role abroad, and benefit only our adversaries. Turning to the nominees we are considering today, I won't speak about each of them, but I do want to say that I believe they are all well-qualified and deserving of their nominations. I will be voting for them and look forward to their swift confirmation. With that, let me turn to the distinguished ranking member, Senator
1: Risch. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. I concur in your remarks about filling these vacancies. It's important. I'm glad we've been able to move as rapidly in this administration as we have. Certainly more so than uh, we did in the last administration, unless uh, uh, it is bipartisan that these uh, uh, vacancies be filled, uh, whichever party is uh, in control of the White House. Uh, I want to speak uh, briefly about uh, the nominations, and as you and I discussed, we'll accept a voice vote on these nominations uh, with the understanding that, uh, uh, with your usual kind indulgence, uh, those who want to vote no will be able to be recorded as such. So uh, with that, I want to talk about, uh, uh, primarily about uh, the appointment of Dr. Goodman to uh, Germany, Ambassador of Germany. The U.S. Uh, relationship with Germany faces significant challenges, especially due to threats of nefarious foreign and geopolitical influence from Russia and China. Our Ambassador in Berlin must be firm in combating these threats and able to make the case to our German counterparts that we need a shared approach to standing up against malign influence. I'm going to record a no vote against uh, Dr. Goodman, but uh, it, is, uh, it is not personal, which I will explain here. Uh, and when she is confirmed, I stand ready to work with her in, uh, to strengthen our alliance with uh, Germany. I also expect her to engage uh, on efforts to stop construction of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. I'm uh, no not because uh, of uh, her qualification. Certainly, uh, she's qualified. She's had a uh, long and successful co- career but uh, I think that probably uh, uh, as uh, with her position with the University of Pennsylvania, it really is a poster child for the ongoing and growing malign influence of China uh, and uh, at our institutions of higher learning. The University of Pennsylvania has accepted millions, millions and millions of uh, dollars in donations and, and contracts from China. The issue of foreign influence and uh, particularly Chinese influence in U.S. uh, higher education institutions is very important to this committee. And we continue, we've made efforts and we continue, uh, and I've worked with the chairman on this to pursue efforts to uh, put a stop to this and uh, it's important we do so. Uh, The University of Pennsylvania is a large organization, but I remain troubled that Dr. Goodman did not exert more oversight of Chinese uh, donations and contracts Uh, the Penn institutions uh, were accepting and uh, I think this is uh, uh, really a poster child for what's happening around the country. All CEOs of these institutions of higher learning should learn from this uh, uh, wake-up call and should wake up to uh, what China is doing and uh, providing uh, the money that it does. China is not providing the money uh, for what they're doing out of the goodness of their hearts, but clearly To gain malign influence. Uh, For example, Pennsylvania, University of Pennsylvania had four contracts uh, uh, to uh, provide executive education to the PRC state administration of foreign experts. During its operation, this government entity was responsible for recruiting foreign talent to China, including in science and technology. Dr. Gudman told the committee that Penn's contracts with PRC entities did not undermine U.S. national security, simply because no classified information was revealed. Not sharing classified information is just the starting point to protect U.S. national security. It is not the finish line. There are many other risks to national security presented by PRC inroads into U.S. universities, and these apply to Russia too. China has, uses lucrative contracts, grants, exchanges, and other incentives to co-op networks and institutions, promote PRC interests, and manipulate public uh, discourse. I think, uh, if anything, uh, this nomination has provided us with an additional window into just uh, how widespread this is and how dangerous this is. Uh, Additionally, uh, there's provision for opportunities for efficient and easy uh, access and collection of open source intelligence and know-how to uh, these entities that provide the money. We do not allow uh, people running for public office to accept Chinese money. Or any other money. Why? Because we don't want them to purchase influence uh, or exploit uh, that position. Uh, It it just astounds me that we prohibit people running for public office from doing this, but yet we allow just this tidal wave of flow of money into these higher um, education institutions. This needs to stop and I look forward to continuing to work with the chairman as we uh, develop bipartisan legislation to do this. Briefly, as to Michelle Taylor, on the nomination of the uh, U.N. Human Rights Council, I remain deeply concerned with uh, the uh, Human Rights Council and uh, the U.S. membership in it. It's a broken body, which spends the majority of its time attacking Israel, and its membership is is full of human rights abusers, including China, Venezuela, and Cuba. I I hope, although I doubt, Ms. Taylor can work to reform the Council. The Biden administration's track record of pushing reforms at the U.N. is weak at best and the work uh, that remains to be done is immense. I believe it is an inappropriate for the U.S. to bring its uh, dignity and credibility and loan that to an institution like this institution. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh,
0: thank you, Senator Risch. Uh, by agreement with the ranking member and without objection, we will now consider and block the two uh, Foreign Service officer lists and 11 nominations that have been noticed for this business meeting you all have the list based upon the notice before I ask members if there's anyone who wishes to speak to any of these nominees uh... let me just uh, say very briefly that i share uh... senator rich's concerns about chinese influence in our institutions of higher learning but i, I do feel it's important for the record to revisit the fact as it pertains to dr gutman in the university of pennsylvania um, first none of None of the money that the University of Pennsylvania received from Chinese donors went to research involving critical technologies. None. Second, none of the donations provided China access to classified or sensitive research information. None. Fourth, as we heard from Dr. Gutman directly in her testimony before the committee, under her leadership, she rejected a Confucius Institute at the University of Pennsylvania to her credit. Uh, I have joined uh, with a ranking member as we did on the committee's uh, China bill earlier this year on this issue. Uh, I believe we did some good work there and I stand ready uh, to work with him uh, if more needs to be done. With that is there any member who wishes to speak to these nominations before we vote in blocks? Senator Carton.
2: Uh, thank you Mr. Chairman and uh-
0: Uh, I support all of these nominees, and I concur in your
2: comments about Dr. Gutmann in regards to her nomination to be the ambassador to the Federal Republic of Germany. Her family background gives her a special insight. I think it can help us greatly uh, in our representation in Germany. But I wanted to take this time to raise a concern as to the – ambassador-at-large nominee for anti-Semitism that's not on our agenda and hasn't been – we haven't had a hearing. I mention this because this committee was instrumental in establishing an ambassador-at-large for anti-Semitism. And yet, we are not able to move forward with Deborah Lipstadt, which I think is very regrettable that we're not having action on this. As chairman of the U.S.-Helsinki Commission, as special representative of the OSCE, Parliamentary Assembly on anti-Semitism, racism, and intolerance, I find it difficult to advocate our leadership globally when we don't move forward in our own Senate on this extremely important position, one in which we were responsible for creating. So, Mr. Chairman, I just really wanted to raise that issue, and I hope that we can work out between the chairman and ranking member a process in which this committee can take action on the ambassadorship, which to me is so critically important for US leadership to fight the growth of anti-Semitism.
0: Senator Cardin, let me thank you for your comments. I embrace them. I join you in them. I have been advocating for a hearing uh, for this nominee, and I hope to get there with a ranking member in order to do so. I think it's a critical position to be able to fill in the world at a time in which we see a rising tide of anti-Semitism, both at home and abroad, and so um, I look forward to working with Senator Rich in that regard.
1: If I can comment, uh, likewise, I look forward to working uh, in that regard, too. The nominee has left a lengthy trail of uh, materials that we're in the process of reviewing, but I suspect we'll get there and we'll continue to work in it.
0: Any other member who wishes to speak to these nominees? If not, um, will, is there a motion to entertain uh, these uh, nominees in the FSO list in block? So moved by Senator Cardin, second. All those in favor will say aye. Aye. All those opposed will say no. The ayes have it. And those who wish
1: to be recorded as no will be, uh, will be so recorded for the record. And, uh, uh, Mr. Chairman, I, uh, we can't submit those for the record if you'd like. I'd like to be recorded on Goodman as no. I suspect other members. Senator
0: um, Rischel will so be S-
1: recorded. Senator and- uh, Barrasso also wants to be recorded on uh, the EBOM nomination in Waikishaw. Nomination. But we'll, there's a number of these, so, so we we'll submit them. They shall so be recorded as Thank well. You.
3: Senator?
4: Uh, Mr. Chairman, I'd like to be recorded as nay on the following um, Gutman for Germany, Hill for Serbia, Taylor, UNHRC, Ibong, USTDA, Y. for African Development Bank, Holgate for the IAEA, and Cardi for ECOSOC. Thank
0: you, sir. The Senator shall so be recorded. With that, the nominees are favorably reported to the Senate for the Senate's consideration, and this meeting is adjourned. This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will now come to order. We are here today to consider nominations for four important positions. Sarah Cleveland to be the State Department Legal Advisor, James O'Brien to be the Coordinator for Sanctions Policy, Dr. Beth Van Schack, uh, to be ambassador at large for global criminal justice and George Soonis to be the ambassador for Greece. Congratulations to each of you. We appreciate your willingness and that of your family, because we recognize that this is a sacrifice uh, by families as well to serve your country in this capacity. Um, I know that there are various colleagues who are uh, looking to um, make introductions uh, of our nominees uh, before the committee. I understand that Senator Coombs is seeking to introduce Ms. Cleveland, Uh, Senator Booker will be introducing Dr. Van Schock, and Senators (coughs) Casey and Paul will be introducing uh, Mr. Tunis. So we'll start with, uh, I understand Senator Casey is joining us virtually? That's correct. Senator Casey, the floor is yours.
3: Chairman Menendez, thank you for this opportunity. I want to thank you and Ranking Member Risch and members of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for this opportunity in, in to appear before you in this format to support George Soonis's nomination to be the next ambassador to Greece. I've known George for over 15 years. Uh, he has friends on both sides of the aisle in the United States Senate and I want to thank him for his willingness to serve. I also want to thank, as Chairman Menendez made reference to his family, Uh, George's wife, Olga, his two daughters, Eleni and Yana, and his son, James. Families make it possible for an American to serve our nation abroad, and we are grateful for the contribution that they make. Let me start with the role of ambassador to Greece. As the committee members know better than I, this is a vital, diplomatic position for the United States government. As Russia continues its unprecedented aggression against Ukraine and other democratic neighbors, and Iranian threats in the Middle East grow, the position of ambassador to Greece has become even more important to U.S. national security and regional stability in Europe and the Middle East. This ambassador serves to promote the thriving U.S.-Greek economic partnership, and both of our nation's democratic values and respect for human rights. George is prepared to take on these responsibilities and these challenges, and strengthen our relationship with Greece. His legal and business acumen and strong commitment to public service make him well-qualified to serve as ambassador. He's practiced law Mm -hmm. in New York, rising to Be a partner in New York's largest real estate municipal law and commercial litigation firm. In 2005, he left his firm to start his very successful company, Chartwell Hotels. George has grown Chartwell (laughs) as a leader, operating hotels across the East Coast and Mid-Atlantic. I know personally in Pennsylvania, George has developed four hotels from ground up construction creating hundreds of construction jobs and permanent hospitality jobs. Every job, especially in places like Williamsport, Pennsylvania, like Homing County in the north central part of our state, every single job is important to those communities. And that community also rehabilitated the historic 1913 First National Bank, uh, returning this Williamsport landmark to commercial use. He's also been very active in the Chamber of Commerce in Lycoming County. In addition to his private sector leadership, George has also served his community, whether it's as a a lawyer for the New York City Council, work he's done in the town of Huntington's Environmental uh, Open Space Committee, the Dix Water uh, District, serving as an advisor here in the Senate to the Senate Banking Committee, and chairman of the Battery Park city authority. Again, in service of the people of Pennsylvania, George founded a scholarship for, for promising students at the Pennsylvania College of Technology, one of our premier institutions in the state, and he remains active in, in his support for uh, Lycoming County communities and philanthropic organizations. George knows intimately the interests of the Greek people and how to represent those interests at the highest levels. He is the son of first-generation Greek immigrants, uh, learning Greek as his first language and actively participating in the community of St. Paraskevi. George has become a recognized leader in the Greek-American community. He was a founding trustee of the foremost Greek civic leadership organization in the United States, the Hellenic American Leadership Council and remains vice president of the board of directors. He continues to support other nonprofit organizations whose missions revolve around the importance of the U.S.-Greek relationship, including the Hellenic Initiative Leadership 100, the Greek Orthodox Archdiocese National Coordinating Committee, and so much more. For his leadership on behalf of the Greek-American community, George has received the St. Paul's Medal, the highest ecclesiastical honor for a layman from the Greek Orthodox Church in America and a member to the Order of St. Andrew the Apostle, the highest honor given to a layperson by His All Holiness Ecumenical Patriarch Bartholomew. George's extensive leadership experience and his long commitment to the U.S. Greek relationship have prepared him well to represent the United States as our next ambassador to Greece. I enthusiastically support and recommend his nomination to, to you. And I'm honored to have this opportunity today. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Senator Casey, for that insightful introduction. I now turn to a distinguished member of, the, of this committee, Senator Paul.
5: Mr. Chairman, ranking member, and members of the committee, thank you for allowing me to introduce my friend George Souness to you and to encourage you to him, approve him as the U.S. ambassador to Greece. Uh, I've known George for several years. I know him as a patriot, a civic leader, and an exceptional executive, as well as someone who's exhibited uh, the bipartisanship that I think will help him in negotiating as a, as a diplomat and representing his country. He's been an important figure in U.S. Greek relations. He understands the dynamics of the long friendship between our countries. We would be fortunate to have him as our representative to the government of Greece. George has succeeded in business and is eager to bring that expertise to the public sector. He heads Chartwell Hotels, as you've heard, which is successful across the country. He also chairs the Battery Park City Authority, which manages a 92-acre development on Manhattan's Lower West Side. He speaks Greek, is a proud American of Greek descent. George is active in the Orthodox Church, was a founding Uh, trustee of the Hellenic American Leadership Council, and as a trustee of the Hellenic Initiative, a global humanitarian and organization established a decade ago. George has worked closely with the Greek American leaders in the United States, knows many of the important players in Greece, and is conversant with the issues they deal with regularly. He also understands how to operate part of the government, as part of the government in the United States. He served as a legislative attorney for the New York City Council, as counsel for the Dix Hills Water District in New York, and as an aide to a U.S. Senator. In fact, he worked for Senator Alphonse D'Amato, who is here today. Thank you, Senator D'Amato, for being here today to support George's nomination. George is involved in (coughs) countless charities that give back to the community, including various hospitals. We're fortunate that George wants to return to government service Thank you for considering him for this important role, and thank you, Mr. Chairman, for allowing
0: me to speak on George's behalf. Thank you very much, Senator Paul. Uh, Senator Booker, uh, are you ready to introduce Dr. Van Schock?
6: Yes, uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I have known uh, uh, Dr. Beth Van Schock for uh, 34 years. Uh, she had uh, the unfortunate uh, experience of meeting me when we were both teenagers, uh, and while I was a hunk of undeveloped athletic and intellectual potential, uh, she was an extraordinary standout in her college years. She was brilliant, wise beyond her years, and someone deeply committed to her classmates. Uh, I made the smart decision just to follow her, and I followed her to Yale Law School, where we continued to develop our friendship, but more Importantly to the matter before us, I got to see her uh, tie her intellectual uh, excellence uh, with a commitment for larger issues of justice. Uh, This is someone who has, I have seen, weather very difficult uh, personal challenges, overcoming adversity, and yet she continued to devote her life over and over to serving her country and others. After receiving her law degree from Yale, Uh, She's been committed to achieving justice, uh, beginning her career working on behalf of victims of human rights abuses. She has served as deputy in the same office that she has now been nominated to lead. She has been advisor, uh, valued advisors to Secretary of State uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, to Secretary of State John Kerry, on ways the United States can prevent and respond to mass atrocities and war crimes. In 2014, she returned back to Stanford, where she is currently the Lee Kaplan Professor in Human Rights, focused on training the next generation of human rights advocates. She has earned a reputation amongst her students and colleagues and peers as one of the preeminent experts uh, in our nation on these pressing issues. It is an honor for me, one of the great of my time as senator to be able to not only introduce her, but to press upon my colleagues, that I think she will be a tremendous uh, addition to our diplomatic corps, not just because of her vast experience, not just because of her intellect and expertise, but because of her character. It is what I have seen for 34 years, that she has grit, that she has guts, that she has dedication to others. And I think she will be an extraordinary asset uh, to this nation, not to mention the fact that she can still beat me in a 40-yard dash. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Oh, and Mr. Chairman, uh, a point of privilege, please. Uh, I I just have to say to my friend, uh, George Cunas Carimera, and sir, thank you for standing up. Uh, Eferisto.
0: Wow. (laughs) 40-yard dash, Okay. Uh, I understand that Senator Coons Senator is here, so we recognize him now.
7: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, it's my honor to introduce uh, my friend and uh, law school classmate, uh, Sarah Cleveland, uh, nominated by uh, President Biden to serve as legal advisor for the State Department. I want to welcome uh, her family, Roger, Grover, Richard, Electa, who are with her today. Uh, I've known her more than 30 years, uh, and I remember most clearly and sharply our working together on Uh, international human rights litigation uh, on behalf of refugees being interdicted on the high seas, Uh, refugees from Haiti uh, who were fleeing a change of government there and seeking uh, refuge. Uh, She was the legal brains of our team and was brilliant then and is brilliant now. Um, She's been nominated to be the State Department's top lawyer at a critical moment uh, when we need someone with deep experience, uh, great uh, values, and um, the ability to help give the most relevant and timely advice uh, to uh, the leaders of our State Department and our nation. Uh, if confirmed, she'd be the second woman in our nation's history to hold the position of the presidentially uh, appointed legal advisor. Uh, she was raised in Alabama, uh, worked as a sales clerk and waitress in Birmingham to pay her way through Brown, uh, went on to uh, study at Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar uh, and uh, Yale at law school, and to clerk on the Supreme Court for Justice Blackman. Uh, she's worked in red states and blue states, uh, at home from Texas to New York to South Florida, and in far-flung corners of the world, from Namibia to Eastern Europe, advancing uh, justice, human rights, and national security. As a result of her nearly 30 years of teaching and practicing international law, she has uh, developed deep expertise. Uh, I have a letter I'll submit for the record of endorsement of former legal advisors who served in both Republican and Democratic administrations. Um, Fourteen of her years were spent working for or advising the U.S. government or the judiciary, and eight as an independent expert at the request of the US government. Um, If you don't know Sarah yet, uh, it'll soon become clear she cares deeply about democracy, uh, human rights, and the rule of law around the world, and is greatly knowledgeable about the threats opposed by Russia, China, Iran, and others. Um, Sarah Cleveland is a dedicated and capable public servant uh, with the intelligence, character, and experience to serve admirably as the next State Department legal advisor. I look forward to supporting her and urge
0: my colleagues to support for confirmation. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Coons. Uh, let me turn to these nominees uh, briefly. Ms. Cleveland, welcome and congratulations on your nomination. You have a stellar legal resume. I have no doubt that your experience, including in the office of the legal advisor, or L, as it is well known, uh, will serve you well. I'm pleased to note that you have the strong support of your predecessors, all nine living former legal advisors, six Republicans <laughs> and three Democrats have written to Senator Rich and myself endorsing your nomination. And without objection, I, I'll ask that those letters will be included in the record. As you know, the role of legal advisor is somewhat unique in our government. If confirmed, you'll be the general counsel of the State Department, leading L and its cadre of exceptionally talented lawyers. And you'll also be the chief international legal diplomat for the United States. You'll be expected to provide objective legal advice to the Secretary of State of the Department policy makers and offices across the federal government. I expect that if confirmed, you will build upon the work of the current administration to return the United States to a place it once held on the global stage as a country that both observes and advances the rule of law. As an attorney for the executive branch, you will no doubt be pressed to broadly interpret the president's Article II authorities. I'll look to you for a rigorous and objective <coughs> legal analysis and I expect that consistent with our Constitution, you'll understand the interest and role of Congress in the area of foreign affairs and work in good faith with this committee to ensure that Congress's constitutional role in foreign affairs is fully and meaningfully respected. Mr. O'Brien, I'm pleased to have you before us uh, both because I believe you're an excellent nominee and because your presence signifies something that both Senator Risch and I work towards the establishment of a sanctions coordinator position in law. It is a critical position and the last administration's decision to leave it unfilled was in my view short-sighted and damaging. As you know, sanctions are one of the few meaningful tools we have in our foreign policy toolkit. If confirmed, you will have three statutorily mandated roles. You will be the lead sanctions diplomat, the lead for state on sanctions in the interagency process and the lead within state in coordinating sanctions policy. In short, your efforts will be instrumental to ensuring that our sanctions policy are fully aligned with and advancing our foreign policy. I look forward to hearing how you'll approach that complex set of challenges awaiting you, if confirmed. And Dr. Von Schock, congratulations on your nomination. I'm glad to hear you can outrun my distinguished colleague from New Jersey. Uh, you have had a distinguished career that's prepared you well for this position. If confirmed, you'll be tasked with advising the Secretary of State and others in the US government on how to prevent and respond to atrocities around the world. To say this is a critical task would be an understatement. For decades, the United States has led the world in seeking responsible mechanisms of international justice to hold accountable the dictators, thugs, and warlords who commit atrocities against their own citizens. And yet, when we look around the world today, we see rising impunity for perpetrators of atrocities against innocent civilians. The genocide of Uyghurs in China's Xinjiang region, the murderous assault on the Rohingya and other ethnic and religious minorities by the military junta in Burma, the Assad regime's machinery of torture and death in Syria, and the use of starvation and sexual assault as a weapon of war in Ethiopia are only some examples. Strengthening international mechanisms for accountability is essential to helping prevent mass atrocity crimes, and I look forward to hearing your ideas on how best we can accomplish this. Ms. Asunas, I welcome your nomination, which comes at such a high point in the U.S.-Greece relationship. Greece is a critical U.S. ally, a strategic partner, and a linchpin for security and democracy in the eastern Mediterranean. As the birthplace of democracy, Greece continues to be a beacon of freedom in southeastern Europe. In recent years, we have taken several important steps towards strengthening our strategic partnership with Greece. Congress has reaffirmed its strong bipartisan support for Greece with the landmark Eastern Mediterranean Security and Energy Partnership Act in 2019, which I led with Senator Rubio and other members of this committee. Last year, we made strides in strengthening NATO's southern flank with the passage of the U.S.-Greece Defense and Interparliamentary Partnership Act, which I also led with Senator Rubio and other members of this committee. And Secretary Blinken and Foreign Minister (laughs) Dendias recently signed an updated and expanded defense cooperation agreement, furthering our ability to stand with our allies. So, Mr. Souness, if confirmed, you will inherit the strongest U.S.-Greece relationship in history, one that is well poised for even further growth. You know Greece and the dynamics of the region well, and I'm confident in your ability to bring the U.S.-Greece relationship into the next era. With that, let me turn to the distinguished ranking member for his comments, Senator Risch.
1: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, On the nomination of legal advisor to the Department of State, this position advises the secretary on all legal issues related to the uh, work of the department, including matters of compliance uh, with congressional oversight. Obviously, a very important matter to this committee. The use of force also and international agreements entered into by the United States are also matters on which advice is given. Uh, Ms. Cleveland, uh, I do not envy the task before you. You come to this nomination at a pivotal juncture in U.S. foreign policy as the United States faces some of what I believe the greatest challenges of our time. You'll be in the room as the department grapples with difficult legal questions. But I want to emphasize another critical element of the job, an obligation and a commitment to keep Congress informed on these crucial legal questions. I raise this point because so far in the Biden administration, states' legal opinions have been missing in action. I'm sure they exist, I hope they exist, Uh, but they are not shared with this committee. It's hard to understand administration policy and to do oversight without them. This lack of transparency damages confidence. Responses to questions on Nord Stream 2 sanctions have been delayed and are cursory when received. The department has been unwilling to respond to the most basic factual questions about why certain entities have not been sanctioned under clear statutory requirements. Questions about congressional oversight uh, over potential re-entry into the JCPOA have been insufficient. The administration's compliance with the CSER Act has been lackluster at best, and it is accelerating uh, outreach to uh, to Assad despite congressional inquiries. These are just a few of the most egregious examples. Should you be confirmed, I expect you to take seriously congressional requests for information and transparency. It is important to note, that your job is to provide legal opinions, not legal facts. The law is never as black and white as legal advisors make it out to be. And since this uh, body writes the laws, interpreting them in contradiction to congressional intent is dangerous. <laughs> On the nomination of sanctions coordinator, I am pleased the administration has nominated someone to this important position. As the chairman uh, indicated, he and I uh, personally engaged to create this office under law and evaluated to the rank of ambassador with a direct uh, report to the Secretary of State. I believe the structure can improve U.S. uh, sanctions policy in three chief ways. Uh, Improve internal department communications about the goals of our sanctions regimes and most effective use of implementation tools and resources. Improve U.S. interagency communication to ensure our sanction regimes are fully aligned with U.S. foreign policy objectives and create a centralized point of contact for foreign governments to ensure effective communication with allies and partners on sanctions, implementation, and technical cooperation. Uh, This uh, particular position is so important now that this uh, country more and more relies on sanctions uh, to adjust uh, uh, other uh, countries' actions. And uh, we do that in lieu of uh, kinetic uh, type of activity that we've engaged in in the past. Uh, This uh, can be uh, more important and uh, actually more effective than kinetic action. Should you be confirmed, I expect you to focus on determining structure, process, and resourcing that will set the office up for success now and in the future. And I ask uh, for your commitment to cooperatively uh, engage with our office and Congress on these issues going forward. On the nomination of Ambassador-at-Large for Global Criminal Justice, This office is tasked with aiding in interagency atrocity prevention efforts as well as driving response and accountability efforts for war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide. This role is important in seeking accountability for crimes committed in countries such as Syria, Burma, Iraq, Ethiopia, Venezuela, and others in conflict. While I remain a strong critic of the ICC, this office needs to work with the international community and our like-minded allies to find the proper avenues of accountability and justice for victims of atrocities. I look forward to hearing your thoughts on these issues. Finally, on the nomination of Ambassador to Greece, Greece faces challenges on multiple fronts as it manages China's attempts to establish footholds in its economy. russian malign influence campaigns to divide the European Union and massive migration inflows. Should you be confirmed as ambassador, I hope your experience in business and development will help you navigate the difficult challenges regarding foreign influence and competition in Greece's economy. Thank you, Senator Hernandez.
0: Thank you, Senator Risch. Now we'll turn to our nominees. Uh, We'd like to give you about five minutes or so to summarize your statements. Your full statements will be included in the record without objection. And we'll start with Ms. Cleveland.
8: Thank you, Chairman Menendez, and thank you, Senator Coons, for that generous introduction and your years of friendship and leadership. Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, and distinguished members of the committee, it is an honor to appear before you as President Biden's nominee to serve as legal advisor of the Department of State. I'm deeply grateful to President Biden and Secretary Blinken for their confidence and support. I also want to express my gratitude to the members of this committee and your staff for your consideration. For over 20 years, I have taught my students about the importance of the constitutional role of Congress in US foreign relations. I have found my conversations with members of this committee enlightening, and I look forward to our continued engagement if confirmed. I would like to introduce my daughter, Electa Cleveland, my son, Richard Tuttenham, my brother, Grover Cleveland, and yes, that is his name, and my life partner, Roger Cohen, who are with me today. My 97-year-old father, Melford Cleveland, is watching from his home in rural Alabama, and my ailing mother, Marsha Cleveland, who danced with the National Ballet of Washington here, is with us in spirit. We all know the tremendous toll that government service inflicts on our loved ones. I want to thank my family for their steadfast enthusiasm and support, and for all I have learned from them. I love you deeply. My family has worked at all levels of national, state, and local government, and to them, I owe my passion for public service. My father, a law clerk to fellow Alabamian, Justice Hugo Black, held his first legal position in the office of the legal advisor of the State Department, the office to which, if confirmed, I would now return. He then served for 20 years in the Justice Department before completing his career as an administrative law judge for the Social Security Administration. My brother was legal counsel to King County in Washington State. My great-grandfather was Speaker of the House of the Massachusetts Legislature. And my grandmother, Walter Francis Cleveland, was a public school teacher and a member of the Board of Electors of her rural Alabama community. She registered numerous black Americans to vote after World War II. Inspired by their examples, it has been my mission to serve the public good. I began as a law clerk to District Judge Louis Oberdorfer and Supreme Court Justice Harry Blackman. I have spent more than two decades teaching students about the central place of law in US foreign relations, first at the University of Texas, then at Columbia University. Some of them are now among the excellent lawyers at the Office of the Legal Advisor, or L. I know L. well. I served as the Legal Advisor's Counselor on International Law from 2009 to 2011 and as an expert advisor to the office until 2013. I have been a member of the Secretary of State's Advisory Committee on International Law for over a decade. Having provided legal advice to the department under both Democratic and Republican administrations, I understand L's important role. Its 300 attorneys and other professionals provide objective advice on the law to the department and the US government. They problem solve. They identify legal constraints and offer their best judgment to policymakers seeking to advance US interests. They help explain US government legal positions to this Congress, the public, and counterparts around the world. I would bring a lifetime of knowledge to the office if confirmed. My experience overseeing the definitive treatise on US foreign relations law and serving as the US government-nominated expert to international bodies makes me keenly aware of the challenges involved, particularly as states such as Russia, China, and Iran pose growing threats to our global legal order. If given the honor of serving as legal advisor, I would seek to provide balanced, clear, practical, and objective legal advice of the highest quality. <laughs> I would do so with integrity, humility, and a full sense of the great responsibility I would bear. I would commit to maintaining close relations with Congress and this committee. As a teacher, I often close my course with a quote from Oliver Wendell Holmes, quote, Go out and live greatly in the law, find your passion, and wear your heart out after the unattainable. We may not always be able to secure all our aspirations as a nation for ourselves and humanity, but grounded in our values, our Constitution, and our laws, we must never waver from that quest. It would be a privilege to serve the US in this capacity, and I look forward to your questions.
3: Thank
0: you. Mr. O'Brien.
9: Uh, Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member. It's an honor to appear before the committee um, and to have been asked to undertake this assignment if the Senate agrees that, uh, that I'm to be confirmed. You each emphasize the role that this committee in particular plays in shaping US sanctions policy. I already enjoy close relationships with some of your advisors. I expect to deepen those relationships and engage with this committee if I'm confirmed to this position. I thank you for all the time that you've given and the staff has given to my nomination. I'm also honored to be on this panel. These three people are the best at what they do, and I really hope we get the chance to work together if the Senate decides that, uh, that, that that's to be. I'm here because of the support of my family. My wife, Mary, my children, Sean and Jamie, my sisters, Megan and Nan. I, I want to offer a special word of thanks to my dad, Jim, who's watching from Nebraska. His mother worked for Senator Burke many years ago, so he's had the opportunity to revisit some family history as I prepared for this, this hearing. And I want to say a word about my late mother, Jane. She died a year ago last week. Um, It's been a difficult year for my father. But I think now we're starting to see our way through this. She believed strongly in community service, having supported efforts to bring refugees to Nebraska, to work with integrating the people mentally challenged into their own housing. Uh, to work with English as a second language students, and to promote the sports among girls. I think that heritage of community service makes me hope that she would be proud of me for being willing to go back into government service. I know she respected American institutions, and she would appreciate your role in deciding whether I'm suited to go back into public service. I have worked in government almost 15 years of my career serving twice as Special Presidential Envoy. I worked as an attorney advisor in L. in my opening position in the US government. And so I've been around US sanctions policy for more than 30 years. I've seen how important sanctions are. And I know it's vital that we enforce the sanctions and fully implement the sanctions that we have on the books. And so I commit myself that that will be a major part of my work if I'm confirmed. In preparing for our consultations. I've been very impressed by the the investment the executive branch has made in identifying sanctions targets and trying to develop the programs so that they can be effective. There are several hundred people at State and Treasury, as well as the Department of Commerce, the White House, the intelligence community, working on these issues. As the Treasury Department noted in its review, published several months ago, It alone has submitted almost 9,500 individual sanctions over recent years. There are 20 independent sanctions programs and scores of legislation and executive orders to, to be coordinated. So there's a lot of work to do to see that this is effective. Mr. Chairman, you asked how I would intend to do this. One is with a lot of help. I will need the colleagues from across the executive branch and also those in this room and across the the Congress (coughs) to be sure that US policy is clear and forceful. I want to emphasize just a few points. First, sanctions are part of a strategy. They cannot be the strategy. So I will work with the colleagues responsible for US policy so that, that we are clear about what we intend by sanctions. We have clear goals. We understand the power structures we are trying to enforce. And we are adaptable so that when the targets of our sanctions seek to evade them, we are able to respond. Secondly, we have to understand both the effectiveness of our sanctions and their impacts. And in particular, we need to look at the humanitarian consequences of sanctions policy. Nothing undermines sanctions more quickly than the idea that they are hurting the innocent bystanders. And so I look forward to working with you to be sure that we, get, we achieve the, tar- the goals of our sanctions while not hurting those who are not the intended um, uh, uh, targets. The third point is we have to work with our partners. Mr. Chairman, you mentioned that I would be a lead diplomat. I intend to work not only on my own, but with all of my colleagues from across the administration, such as ambassadors and post, because we need everyone to speak with one voice about what the US expects from our partners, and what we can learn from our partners so that we work well together. Finally, Mr. Chairman, sanctions are vital to the fight against corruption. This committee and others in Congress have been uh, uh, resolute in declaring corruption to be a threat to the United States. President Biden has established a strong national strategy to combat corruption globally. And I see the role of sanctions as a critical part in this and also in bringing forward the use of all the tools that are available to fight corruption. With that, we can attack not only the targets, the people who are responsible for human rights abuses and the violations of law that cause us to want to sanction them, but we'll be able to get at the networks of enablers that they rely upon to be able to attack our national security. So with that, Mr. Chairman, ranking member, (coughs) I appreciate the consideration so far, and I look forward to to further (coughs) conversation. Thank you. Mr. Sunnis.
10: Thank you. Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, esteemed members of the committee, I'm honored to appear before you today as President Biden's nominee to be the U.S. Ambassador to Greece, and I thank Senator Paul and Senator Casey for their introduction. I thank the President and Secretary Blinken for their trust and confidence in me, and I'm grateful to this committee for considering my nomination. But most of all, if you'll permit me, I want to express my heartfelt thanks to my parents. They heard Emma Lazarus's calling, and they immigrated to this country from Greece to build a better life for themselves and our family. My family is very cognizant of the fact that if it wasn't for the Truman Doctrine, the world's first democracy would have been pulled into the Soviet orbit. If not for the Marshall Plan, Greece would have descended into mass starvation and poverty, and very likely my family as well. I would not be here today if it wasn't for the United States' willingness to provide opportunity for immigrants like my mom and dad and for first generations Americans like me. I'm humbled by the president's nomination, and I view it as a chance to give back to the country that has given me and my family so much. I'd also like to thank my wife, Olga, whose mom and dad also immigrated from Greece and our three children, James, Eleni, and Jana. They are my bedrock of support. I'd like to thank former Senator Alphonse D'Amato, my former boss, who's here to offer moral support. Thank you, Senator. It's not an exaggeration to say that I have blessed to live the American dream. After attending law school, I've worked in government as an associate in a small law firm and then a partner in a large firm until I followed my father in business as an entrepreneur when I founded Chartwell Hotels. During my tenure as CEO, Chartwell has weathered recessions, pandemics, and experienced unprecedented growth. Having witnessed the strength and resiliency of US business in the international marketplace, I understand the importance of expanding our global business and trade And its effect on U.S. jobs as well. As an executive in the hospitality industry, I also understand how important it is to take care of people. If confirmed, my top priority would be to ensure the safety and security of the Americans who live, work, and travel to Greece. Throughout my career, I've maintained a strong interest in foreign and economic affairs. I've had the pleasure of contributing to public policy as a member of the Brookings Institution Foreign Policy Leadership Committee, and a trustee with the Business Executives for National Security. If confirmed, I arrive in Athens at a crucial moment in U.S.-Greece relations. Our relationship is at an all-time high. The annual Strategic Dialogue has helped define the key pillars of the U.S.-Greece relationship, including cooperation on defense and security, law enforcement and counterterrorism, trade and investment, disaster preparedness, energy and climate, and people-to-people ties. Greece continues to make progress on all fronts as it pursues economic revitalization, overcomes the challenges of the pandemic, and grapples with tensions in the eastern Mediterranean. What happens in Greece matters, not just for Greece, but for the eastern Mediterranean region, NATO, the European Union, and the United States. Opportunity is vital to the United States and to Greece. If confirmed, my top economic commercial goals will be built on the efforts to accelerate trade and investment opportunities. The United States and Greece have made tremendous progress on energy cooperation. If confirmed, I will encourage Greece to continue investing in renewable energy as well as projects important to regional energy security, including the interconnector with Bulgaria, the interconnector with North Macedonia, the Alexandrupoli floating storage regasification unit, and electricity interconnectors that can support both gas and renewable energy sources. We're seeing an increased U.S. investment in Greece and renewables. I believe there is room for greater cooperation. The United States benefits from a strong, growing bilateral defense relationship with our NATO ally, Greece. If confirmed, I will continue to deepen this key relationship Particularly noteworthy is the long-standing United States military presence at Southern Bay on the island of Crete, from which the military conducted approximately 2,500 flights and 143 ship visits in 2021 alone. Our defense relationship has grown significantly over the last five years, including through updates to the Mutual Defense Cooperation Agreement and greater training and deployment in Greece. People-to-people ties are the bedrock of the us greek relationship, If confirmed, I look forward to working with the Greek cultural institutions, NGOs, municipalities, individual citizens, the diaspora, this committee, to nourish these ties. Finally, if confirmed, I will work with an outstanding Mission Greece team in an inclusive manner to bolster this already strong relationship. Thank you for the opportunity to be before
0: you. I welcome your questions. Thank you. Dr. Schock.
11: Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, distinguished members of this committee and your staffers, thank you so much for the opportunity to appear before you today. I'm very touched by Senator Booker's um, lovely and somewhat hyperbolic um, introduction. Um, It's a great honor to have been nominated by President Biden to return to the office where I once served as deputy and to be ambassador at large for global criminal justice. I'm grateful to the president and to Secretary Blinken for the confidence they have placed in me, and also for giving me the opportunity to return to public service to advance global justice on behalf of the American people. I'm very pleased to be accompanied today by my husband, Brent Lang, and one of my dearest friends, Kim Keating. Supporting me virtually are my mom, Carol, and my two kids, Miles and Brooke. They are joining us from their respective perches at the universities of the great states of Washington and Michigan, respectively. I'm also thinking today of my late father, Eric, um, who was a veteran of the US Army and who would be so proud of his two daughters, me as I sit here before you today and my sister, who is a devoted uh, pediatrician and also a veteran of the US Army. My family has been an endless source of love and support over the course of my career in international justice and for that I'm forever grateful. I'm confident that my previous professional experiences positioned me well to lead the Office of Global Criminal Justice, which, as was mentioned, helps to advise the department and the interagency and Congress on US policies on atrocities, prevention, and response, and also to advance international justice efforts around the globe. I started my legal career in the office of the prosecutor of the two war crimes tribunals for the former Yugoslavia and for Rwanda during the Renaissance of the field in the 1990s. Since then, I have worked in the field of transitional justice and on behalf of victims of grave international crimes as a uh, practicing lawyer, as an academic, as a civil society advocate, as a diplomat, and as a mentor. If confirmed, I hope that I will bring lessons learned from all of these incarnations to the role of ambassador at large, and also to draw inspiration from the aspirations of survivors for justice and accountability. If confirmed, I look forward to working with colleagues in the department, the interagency, here in Congress, um, and within civil society to advance the following interlocking priorities. First, I would work to ensure that the United States provides steady leadership for international justice efforts around the world to tackle impunity and to ensure fair and effective proceedings in regional, international, hybrid, or national courts. Second, if confirmed, I would ensure that the Office of Global Criminal Justice provides trustworthy expertise to department leadership, to our embassies and posts around the world, on the whole range of transitional justice mechanisms that are available to states emerging from situations of armed conflict or violence. Third, I would work with other relevant offices to strengthen the atrocities prevention architecture across the United States government to ensure a timely early warning and a robust response. Fourth, I would commit to fully implementing the vitally important pieces of legislation that have emerged recently from Congress, including the groundbreaking Global Magnitsky and Global Fragility Acts, the Uyghur Human Rights Policy and Forced Labor Acts, and the Eli Wiesel Act. As you all well know, this is a deeply bipartisan portfolio. And if confirmed, I look forward to building strong partnerships with members of Congress and all of your dedicated staff to ensure the robust execution of US laws. Fifth, I pledge to be a careful steward of the funds that Congress has entrusted to the Office of Global Criminal Justice, including with respect to the groundbreaking War Crimes Rewards Program. And finally, if invited to serve, I look forward to joining a tremendous team of civil servants, Foreign Service officers, and subject matter experts who are working tirelessly on a daily basis on behalf of victims of grave international crimes. In this regard, I support work to diversify the department. I will mentor with care the next generation of US diplomats, and I will ensure the ability to foster morale within our office, notwithstanding its difficult subject matter. Needless to say, there's much work to be done given the rise of authoritarianism, the endurance of brutal conflicts around the world, and retrenchments in states' respect for human rights. The United States was present at the founding of the field of international justice, and if confirmed, I will devote all of my energies to building upon this proud Nuremberg legacy within contemporary U.S. foreign policy. I hope with these brief remarks I've conveyed my passion for the work, the broad-based expertise I would bring to the role of ambassador-at-large for global criminal justice, and my enduring commitment to enhancing U.S. foreign policy around atrocities prevention and response. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Risch, members of the committee for your consideration of my nomination. It would be a great honor to return to the State Department and I look forward to your questions and, if confirmed, to working diligently with all of y'all on these matters. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Uh, Let me just take a moment also to acknowledge uh, Senator D'Amato. We appreciate your service to our country and we welcome you to the committee here today. Uh, We'll turn to a round of five-minute questions by members before I do. I have questions that are asked on behalf of the committee as a whole. I ask each of you to give me a verbal yes or no response uh, to each of these questions. They are questions that speak to the importance that this committee places on responsiveness by all officials in the executive branch and that we expect and will be seeking from you. So uh, please just provide a yes or no answer. Do you agree to appear before this committee and make officials from your office available to the committee and designated staff? when invited. We'll go down the aisle.
8: Yes, Mr. Chairman.
0: Yes. 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 Do you commit to keep this committee fully and currently informed about the activities under your purview?
8: Absolutely, Mr. Chairman.
0: Yes. 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 Do you commit to engaging in meaningful consultation while policies are being developed, not just providing notification after the fact?
8: Yes, Mr. Chairman. Yes. Yes. Yes.
0: Do you commit to promptly responding to requests for briefings and information requested by the committee and its designated staff?
8: Yes, Mr. Chairman. Yes.
0: Yes. Yes. Thank you. All four nominees have answered yes to all of the questions. The chair will reserve his time. Uh, let me turn to the distinguished ranking member,
1: Senator Risch, for his questions. <coughs> thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Ms. Van Check, uh, wh- what are your thoughts on the ICC?
11: Yes, thank you for that question. Um, Senator Risch, the United States has a long history of supporting international justice institutions, as I mentioned, dating back to the Nuremberg era, to the 1990s with the renaissance of the field of international justice, and now to contemporary investigative mechanisms working around the globe to, um, to document and hold accountable those who are stand accused of committing gravest international crimes. I think the International Criminal Court is a part of that larger system. I think in an ideal world, domestic courts would handle the bulk of these matters. And there's work to be done with respect to US foreign policy and programming to help develop domestic capacity so that domestic courts can handle that. But in situations in which those domestic courts are genuinely unwilling or unable to do so, there may be a role for international institutions to step in. Uh, The United States has a longstanding objection to the International Criminal Court exercising jurisdiction over the nationals of non-party states such as the United States, and I will continue to advance that objection if confirmed, as I have done in the past. But I do think that there are situations around the globe where there is a role for the International Criminal Court to play when the state has accepted jurisdiction or the court has jurisdiction by virtue of a referral from the Security Council exercising its peace and security mandate under the UN UN, um, Charter.
1: I I think that's an excellent analysis, really. uh, It's... uh, I, I've objected to our uh, uh, participation in ICC just because of the way they have acted uh, over the years. And I. It, it's unfortunate because uh, the idea of an ICC, as you point out, going back to the Nuremberg trials, uh, uh, is a uh, uh, certainly a laudable idea. The difficulty, of course, is, is uh, we wind up with such a tremendous prejudice against us Uh, And for that matter, Israel finds itself in the same position that we can't subject ourselves to the jurisdiction of the ICC. And those of us who work in the law are always stunned by uh, how uh, other countries, uh, uh, less developed countries, approach the law and uh, have such a different view of what justice is than we do. So at the present time, uh, in any event, uh, our membership in the ICC is... Uh, probably uh not probably is not in the cards and uh your your answer to the fact that it does uh provide some mm-hmm. uh jurisdiction and relief in some areas I, I think is appropriate but uh at the present time our 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 submission to that just is not appropriate i, I are you in agreement with my analysis of uh, of the ICC
11: Yes, thank you for that analysis. I, I do think, and as I mentioned, there is a role to be played and that we should be in a position to support proceedings before the court if it aligns with our foreign policy priorities, if it advances our national security interests, and if that work is ultimately um, in keeping with our core values around justice and accountability.
1: Uh, thank you much. I, I appreciate that. Um, Ms. Cleveland, uh, let me, I want to tell you that we're we're hoping for uh, big things from you. Uh, we're th- this this uh, committee is getting what my staff calls the Heisman from uh, the legal department. That is, we get a stiff arm, and that's about all. Just as an example, we asked for uh, uh, the department's response uh, regarding uh, the sanctions uh, that are supposed to be put in place under Nord Stream Two, and this is a quote from the response we got, uh, uh from the, the legal team, quote, we are, we wanted to know why, uh, the, uh, the, what sanctions weren't put in place. This is a quote, quote, we, we applied the statute period. We looked at the relevant facts and determined the entity met the exception period end quote. Um, that's not what I expect from a lawyer and, uh, gosh, we're, we, you, you've got a heavy lift over there and, uh, well, we aren't the enemy on this committee. It's uh, certainly uh, we're, we're a different branch of government and sometimes have competing interests. But it's really important that we work together, particularly uh, uh, in uh, in some of these areas. So your thoughts?
8: Thank you, Ranking Member Risch. And, and I have heard this concern clearly from both your staff and Chairman Menendez and other members of your committee. I know it's a bipartisan concern. As a a teacher of US foreign relations for over 20 years, I have always led my class with the importance of the constitutional role of Congress in foreign relations, including oversight. And I would firmly commit to making sure that uh, your role um, is supported by receiving the information you need from the Office of the Legal Advisor if I were confirmed.
1: That answer works for me. I hope you can execute. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh Amen to that.
0: Uh, Senator Cardin.
2: Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and let
0: me thank all four
2: of our nominees for their willingness to serve our nation, and we also thank your families. Mr. O'Brien, I appreciated our conversation where we went over the importance of congressional sanction laws, including the global Magnitsky, and the importance of coordinating those activities between the administration and Congress so that we can be all in the same um, page on this. Uh, We need to be more aggressive in the use of sanctions, and I look forward to working with you uh, as we identify areas in which we think we can uh, make some progress. Professor Van Schoenck, I I want to talk a little bit about uh, the the legislations that you mentioned. They're bipartisan, including the Elie Wiesel anti- uh, um, Uh, the Atrocities Prevention Act. And that's bipartisan. I introduced it with Senator Young. It requires certain reports with Congress. The objective here is to prevent atrocities. Uh, That's certainly our goal. In order to do that, we have to have accountability for heinous activities and crimes that are committed. I know that Secretary Blinken will be talking about this later uh, this month Uh, in regards to compliance with the Atrocities Prevention Act, but I'd like to get your views as to how aggressive you will be in the use of that statute and the use of your office working with Congress to deal with atrocities prevention and accountability for those who commit these crimes.
11: Thank you so much for that question and, and frankly, for your leadership in this area. Um, it's, It's much appreciated, I know, from victims and survivor organizations around the world Um, I can tell you that I would wake up every morning in this position if I were confirmed to think, how can I push this portfolio forward today? What can I do today to advance justice around the world? And I think the Eli Wiesel Act provides an incredibly important framework and a set of tools to strengthen the United States' response around both atrocities prevention and our ability to provide accountability um, for victims um, when it comes to perpetrators of grave international crimes. I think there are a whole range of things we can do, and each situation is unique in terms of the vectors of violence, the way in which um, resiliencies operate, the triggers for violence, the role of peace builders within those societies, and so each um, situation will resp- require, I think, a bespoke response. And that's one place where I think the Office of Global Criminal Justice, working with um, like-minded offices around the building and within the interagency, can work to coordinate a whole range of responses that would incapacitate perpetrators, document abuses, provide financial, operational, technical um, diplomatic support to existing justice efforts, to documentation efforts. And I think that the office, while small, can play a really important coordination role in this regard. So if confirmed, I would pledge to, as I mentioned, work hard because, frankly, the victims of the world deserve our best efforts in this regard.
2: And let me just add one additional part that I hope you would call upon us in Congress if you need additional support, resources, or legislation in order to support your efforts. Because I agree with you, there's no higher priority than uh, preventing atrocities. And there are so many areas in the world today in which we see the circumstances that very clearly are moving towards atrocities and genocide. So uh, you know you have partners here in Congress. Please uh, work with us um, in in order to uh, make U.S. leadership effective in in preventing
11: atrocities. Thank you. I will, Senator.
2: Professor Cleveland, I just really want to underscore what Senator Risch said, because there is bipartisan support in this committee, what the chairman said in his opening comments about... Uh, the use of Article II. I would uh, add to that the way in which delegated authority under the AUMF is is handled by the administration. Uh, I recognize you have a client, uh, and you have to uh, serve that client, but I also recognize that an open process with Congress and a very transparent process is critically important to the integrity of the rule of law, and the message. Uh, that you've been teaching your students about the constitutional protections we have and the authorities of the uh, Article I, the legislative branch of government. So there's would be no surprise that many of us totally disagree with the interpretations under the 2001 AUMF. We recognize the history over many administrations. My question to you is not to get into the specifics on the 2001 AUMF, but to have your commitment to work with us in a very open, transparent way as to how we can best serve our country and Congress carrying out its responsibilities. We recognize that the President has Article II powers, but we also recognize that when we delegate authority under an AUMF, there's got to be a reasonable interpretation of that authority because it will affect future actions by Congress where we want to give some flexibility and uh, to the President but we'll be reluctant if we don't have an understanding as to how these authorities are going to be interpreted.
8: Absolutely, Senator. Under Article 1, Congress has the power to declare war, and AUMFs are an exercise of that authority. They are not a blank check for future use of force by the executive branch, and I would certainly commit to working with closely with this committee on the shared goal, I think, with this administration of narrowing and making more specific um, a successor or revised version of the 2001 AUMF.
2: Thank
5: you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Paul. Mr. O'Brien, you mentioned in your opening remarks that uh, sanctions need to be part of a strategy. I couldn't agree more. I would argue, though, that the vast majority of our sanctions have no strategy or have an incomprehensible strategy. I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, For example, we're going to be debating later today or tomorrow whether or not we should sanction Nord Stream 2. I've asked the sponsors of the bill what their strategy is, what is the uh, behavioral change you would like on the part of Russia or Germany, and they said, we just don't want the pipeline. We don't want them to uh, sell oil to each other, sell natural gas to each other. And it's like, well, that's not really a, a strategy that's achievable and not really one that really should be the role of the United States between two sovereign nations to say, oh, you can't sell natural gas to each other. The other problem with the sanctions is we're, we're really eager to put them on people, but we never articulate a reason to take them off the threat of sanctions can actually have some effect. So, for example, Germany and the United States came to an agreement last summer, and they did issue a very um, succinct statement saying that if Russia were to invade or you know, otherwise uh, violate the integrity of Ukraine, that uh, there will be repercussions with regard to the pipeline. That, I think, the threat of an action may have some deterrence. But if we just say tomorrow, we're no longer going to let you sell gas between Russia and and, uh, Germany, I don't know what deterrence that effect has and what, what is the what, what, you know, when are we gonna remove those sanctions? So there's, if you don't articulate what you're going to do, to re, what, what, are the, what the other country needs to do to remove the sanctions, why have the sanctions at all? Now there are categories of sanctions where I don't think you're really trying to change a country's behavior, you just wanna punish people. So you wanna punish people for being corrupt, fine. I voted for those and maybe those have a deterrent effect the same way we have a punishment for crime here deters other people from committing those crimes. You can make that argument. But it's hard to imagine, so for example, we have sanctions on members of the Russian legislation, legislature because they advocated for the takeover, or they complimented Putin for the takeover of Crimea. So when will those be removed? When Russia gives back, to, gives back Crimea? I guess that will be in the next ice age or something. They're never going to be removed. And so if we don't offer to remove sanctions or give countries a reason why we will remove sanctions, then they're of no value. I I would argue that it's very difficult to see a behavior that China has changed, or Russia has changed, or even Iran. People say, well, the sanctions against Iran worked. Well, they were international, so they were more formidable. but the reason they also worked is we finally went to Iran and said, if you do this, we'll do this. If you don't offer to do something, if it's always just punishment, 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 and all you're going to do is say, we're unhappy with you, they are of no value. In fact, I just make it worse and make international relations worse. I know you don't make the policy, we we do, and this is more of a a speech directed towards my fellow senators than you, but the question I would ask you is, what behavior do you see that has changed in Russia or China because of our sanctions? And not the criminal sanctions, I'm talking more about sanctions concerning policy.
9: Sorry. Um, Thank you, Senator. I I agree with a lot of the the analysis. And I look forward to working with you in um, making sure that we do set clear expectations, that the targets of our sanctions know what behavior they're supposed to to undertake in order to see sanctions relief, but that our partners also agree with us that the sanctions are part of a strategy and that we agree on when success has been achieved. I think you you raise a number of questions. Applying across sanctions policies, um, I think, requires a sort of deeper dive. With regard to Russia and China, I mean, each of them in some way is acting as a malign and revisionist power at the moment. I think it's important that we attack the roots of that power and not simply some of the symbols. And so I look forward to working with colleagues, both in the executive branch and here, to be sure that we understand what we're trying to accomplish when we do use sanctions. And and that piece, I think, is important. I oversaw a sanctions program years ago where it became clear that by relieving certain sanctions, we could moderate some behavior, but that other sanctions were very effective at disrupting the core real power structure in the society and really did change policy behavior. And I think that that kind of analysis may be available to us, but that's something I look forward to working with you and your colleagues more on. And I'll just close by saying that one one theme throughout my consultations with both majority and minority and with with members of the committee has been the desire to have more conversation while sanctions are under consideration. And I'll commit to that, because I think a discussion about what our goals are early can often avoid the, the kind of showdown that happens when we're looking At a specific action and so I'll I'll be happy to be part of those conversations going forward.
0: Thank you. Let me thank the senator for his uh, I think there's some very worthy insights both as it relates to Nord Stream and beyond as it relates to uh, how do we also consider how sanctions are relieved uh, as a measure for people to be induced to do something because they want the relief from it so we appreciate those insights. Senator Booker.
6: Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Um, what I want to get back to uh, with Dr. Vanskak is just the issue of the ICC, which is, uh, frankly, uh, a lot more complicated, I think, uh, given uh, some of the decisions by the Trump administration and others. Um, I look at the Horn of Africa, for example, uh, and the challenges we're facing with um, a lot of African countries because of the steps that the ICC has taken, failing to do, as you said in your wonderful analysis to Senator Risch, uh, looking less likely that they're going to comply or invite in the ICC's authority. And it creates a very difficult environment in a region in the Horn of Africa that um, is ripe with uh, 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 internationally uh, um, human, international human rights violations. And so I'm wondering how you create that balance of the legitimacy of the ICC along with the... Um, urgency to uh, get the participation of many of those nations?
11: Yes, thank you for that question. And I, I share your concern about the situation in the Horn of Africa and the deterioration there, and, the, and frankly the risk of civilians in either, either caught in the crossfire or being directly par- targeted by so many of the armed groups there, the Tigrayan forces, the national forces, and, and even uh, Eritrea's involvement um, in the Horn. Um, Ethiopia is not a member of the ICC so there is not an obvious pathway there so it will be incumbent upon the nation to undertake its own transitional justice process as part of a larger political settlement Um, and I know that the administration is working hard to try and encourage those sort that through diplomacy those sorts of um, movement towards bringing the parties to the table and, and reaching some sort of a negotiated solution. A transitional justice program would have to involve everything from acknowledging harm to the um, survivors, to restitution of property if that's necessary, and ultimately to accountability to those most responsible. Um, the ICC may play a role eventually. It would require either a Security Council referral or an acceptance of jurisdiction by Ethiopia. As you mentioned, some African states and other states around the globe have voluntarily self-referred matters to the court on the recognition that their domestic system is unable to handle it or that there might it might be helpful to have an international body dealing with certain cases while the domestic the domestic system deals with other cases. And so if confirmed in the role, I would look forward to working with our incoming special envoy to the Horn of Africa, others across the the regional bureaus, et cetera, to try and encourage the the parties on, in the Horn of Africa to reach a genuine transitional justice um, program that involves a measure of accountability for victims
6: and, and that alignment between where the ICC is resonating with our diplomatic aims where there's in uh, countries that are members is there are there areas as you potentially ascend to this position that uh, beyond the horn that you have um, a really good ambition that you that you we can make an impact from from your office
11: absolutely we've already seen um in central Africa that Um, direct assistance and cooperation by the United States has led to some recent successes in the court. I'm thinking, for example, of the cases against Dominic Anguin, who was the top commander of the Lord's Resistance Army, which is wrecking havoc in northern Uganda and elsewhere in in the region. In addition, Bosco Untaganda, who was recently convicted of of a whole series of war crimes and crimes against humanity, including the use and abuse of child soldiers and sexual violence. as leader of the M23, the United States was instrumental in bringing those individuals to The Hague and in assisting the prosecutor there with those prosecutions. And I think that's a role that we can play going forward. So again, as I mentioned, so long as the work of the court is consistent with our foreign policy priorities and that we're in a position to be, to be supportive.
6: I, I really appreciate it. And just to reiterate what I said earlier, uh, your experience, uh, your work in public service, your expertise, and your nationally recognized uh, stature on these issues. It gives me great excitement about the difference you're going to make in a very important job that can literally save uh, lives and prevent atrocities. And real quick in my remaining time, uh, Mr. Asunas, uh I have a lot of concerns about China's uh, continued investment in strategically important ports around the world. Uh, we have uh, seen China buy and invest in critical ports uh, with stakes in ports in and along Africa's uh, east coast in critical shipping lanes in Asia, uh, and even in Europe, such as ports, uh, in Greece. Um, how do you assess China's investment in critical infrastructure, uh, such as the port of Piraeus and what can the U S do to counter Chinese, uh, potential to lock, uh, on this port, lock up these areas and other cr- critical infrastructure, uh, in Greece?
10: Thank you for your question, Senator. And, uh, it's a very seminal one, uh, China has engaged in economic encroachment and malign influence. Uh, It is part of a very concerted uh, effort and plan, uh, and it is going to continue. Uh, The Rish China Report not only uh, highlights various examples of this, um, but it also speaks to transatlantic cooperation on how we counteract this. Uh, I'm proud to say that Greece, chose a European partner uh, for 5G um, and they're very clear-eyed um, about what China is doing. I will also say that at the time of the purchase of the, uh, of the tender of the port of Piraeus, uh, China was the only uh, offer. We need to show up. We need to be aggressive. It's very clear that they're looking to make critical infrastructure investments in Uh, interconnectors, Mm. grids, uh, and ports, and then use that economic uh, influence into more geopolitical influence um, uh, to uh, promote the interests of the PRC and the Communist Party uh, of China. If confirmed, I pledge to work with the administration, this committee, the government of Greece, to counteract this, And as a business person, I understand what
6: it is to compete aggressively in business transactions. I really appreciate that. And uh, not only the uh, nuances of your answer, but you showed great diplomacy there by mentioning ranking member Rish's very important report.
0: Uh, Well, uh, we give the ranking member and his staff credit that that was actually a very good report. So, Senator Young. Thank you, Chairman. Uh, Congratulations to all
12: of our nominees, and and thank you for your interest in serving our country. Ms. Cleveland, in August, uh, this committee held a hearing examining uh, my legislation with Senator Kaine that would repeal the 1991 and 2002 authorizations for the use of military force against Saddam Hussein's regime in Iraq. I would remind anyone who's within earshot of this committee that Saddam Hussein is dead, No longer in power, therefore. Um, I appreciated hearing from your predecessor on this issue, Acting Legal Advisor Richard Visek. I believe repealing these outdated AUMFs sends a critical signal that the United States is no longer an adversary of Iraq, but a partner. More importantly, it reasserts Congress's prerogative, which you have duly affirmed and acknowledged uh, in, in your testimony today, on the critical decisions related to going to war. If confirmed, would you support moving forward with the repeal of these authorities?
8: Thank you, Senator, for this important question and for your very important leadership on this issue. I know that repeal of the 1991 and 2002 AUMFs um, is supported by this administration and I absolutely would work with this committee to achieve that.
12: Thank you. And in your view, Ms. Cleveland, do you believe repealing these outdated AUMFs would impede military activities or uh, counterterrorism operations around the world?
8: No, Senator, the administration has made clear, including in the August hearing, that the current authorities under the um, 2001 AUMF and the President's Article II Constitutional Authority to act to, de- to defend the United States when necessary are sufficient to address current uh, counterterrorism and other challenges.
12: Thank you. And knowing that uh, you are a uh, law professor and uh, uh, trained in in all things legal, um, you're no doubt skilled in entertaining hypotheticals uh, before courts of law, courts of public opinion, and other venues. So I'm going to give you a very plausible scenario. If you're to be confirmed and U.S. personnel in Iraq are attacked by Iranian-backed militias, is there anything whatsoever that would stop the President of the United States under Article II authority from responding to such an attack if these uh, AUMFs, again pertaining to 1991 and 2002 authorizations uh, against Saddam Hussein's regime in Iraq, were repealed? No, Senator. Thank you. Uh, Mr. O'Brien, congratulations uh, to you as well, sir. India is currently taking delivery of the Russian S-400 system and potential action, uh, which has led uh, some of my colleagues to call for sanctions under CATSA. The Indians are also in the process of acquiring new frigate ships from Russia. Both are important systems for the Indians. As as most uh, here know, the Indians have uh, a lot of legacy systems from previous decades, and and they are interoperable uh, with the Russians' systems. And the Indians seek to defend their land border from Chinese incursions and defend the Indian Ocean from an increasingly uh, adventurous and lawless Blue Ocean Navy and the People's Liberation Army. India's a vital ally in our competition against China, and thus I believe we should resist taking any actions that might drive them away from us and the quad. I'm therefore strongly supportive of waiving CAATSA sanctions against India given our shared foreign policy interests. Mr. O'Brien, does our experience with Turkey provide any warning or lessons for how to proceed with India? I believe there are very different circumstances and, and, of course, different security partnerships, but how do you believe we should think about the possibility of sanctioning our friends and, and not just threats?
9: Um, thank you, Senator. Thank you for your leadership on sanction issues generally. Um, and I, I look forward to working with you on this and, and other issues going forward. As you say, I think it's difficult to compare the two situations with a, a NATO ally that is breaking with legacy um, uh, defense proc- procurement systems, and then a, with India, a growing a partner of growing importance, uh, but that has legacy relationships with Russia. The administration's made clear that it is discouraging India from proceeding with the acquisitions of, of Russian equipment, uh, and there are important geostrategic considerations, uh, particularly with the relationship to China. So I think we have to, to look at what the balance is, and of course India's got some decisions in front of it, so it'd be premature to say more. But this is something I look forward to working with, with you and, and other interested members. Thank you. All
12: right. I'm, I'm over my time, and, and um, I, I too uh, look forward to working with you. I enjoyed our visit and uh, uh, anticipate supporting your uh, confirmation,
0: thank you. Thank you, Senator Haggerty.
4: Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and congratulations to all of our nominees who are here today. Um, Mr. Souness, I would just like to uh, first uh, congratulate uh, Senator Booker for a very insightful question about the Board of Piraeus, but I also want to comment on your very thoughtful answer and approach as a business person. We need more people with your sort of background in these important diplomatic posts. Uh, so, congratulations to you on your nomination, and thank you for bringing that—excuse <clears throat> me—that that perspective, that valuable perspective, uh, to diplomacy. Mr. O'Brien, I'd like to ask a question of you uh, regarding sanctions with respect to Iran. In my prior post as U.S. ambassador to Japan, I worked very hard to get Japan to agree to so-called secondary sanctions, to get them to stop buying Iranian crude oil. In fact, we worked very hard to make that happen around the world, and we reduced Iran's crude exports by 75%. Today, Iran has accelerated its exports through more clandestine activity. Their, their exports now are approaching the levels they were before uh, these sanctions were ever imposed. And we have a team negotiating in Vienna that's wondering why. Iran won't come to the table. Well, Iran is getting the revenues that it needs. It's getting the fuel that it wants to continue to become uh, a nuisance around the world. They're the largest state sponsor of terror. And they're generating revenue in this regard because we are not properly implementing these sanctions. Iran is being allowed to produce more oil. Can you speak to what you will be able to do to help properly implement these sanctions and stop this?
9: Uh, Thank you, Senator. It's an incredibly important question. Uh, For all of the arguments that have gone on about the right approach to Iran, I think there's strong bipartisan agreement that Iran is a malignant actor. It is, as you say, a sponsor of terrorism. It it, uh, brings instability across its region, and its nuclear program allows it to threaten oil supplies and the globe. Um, So this plus the ballistic missile program are all items that we have to find a way to address. I will work to implement sanctions fully and effectively. That means working with our partners, and thank you for your work bringing the Japanese along and, and other allies who had been large consumers of Iranian oil and petrochemical products. We're now in a situation where a smaller set of states have decided to scoff at international sanctions. And so we have to adapt our program to be able to stay one step ahead of them. There is real impact if Iran is forced merely to work on a bartering or cash and carry basis. But we need to try to start shutting off those avenues. And so not just with regard to Iran, but globally, I, I thank the Congress and the administration for setting a new policy course dealing with anti-corruption activities. Because the, the ability to interdict the flow of money, the sort of opaque flows of money that allow for sanctions evasion is going, will be a tremendously important tool for addressing these concerns going forward. So that's something, as I learn more, I'll be happy to speak with you about.
4: I, I would appreciate your continuing to follow up this committee. I'd like to touch on another area of uh, concern, and that's North Korea. Again, while I served as U.S. Ambassador to Japan, North Korea launched intercontinental ballistic missiles over Japan. They even tested what I believe was a hydrogen bomb while I was there. We imposed a maximum pressure at that time. Uh, what we're seeing now, though, is uh, a resurgence of North Korea's belligerence. They're testing hypersonics. They're testing intercontinental ballistic missiles. Um, yet the current administration has only begun to impose sanctions and December with only one tranche of sanctions. Can you speak to what your plan would be for North Korea?
9: Well, I I will be happy to work with you on that as we go forward. As you say, the administration is putting in place its policy. I think a strong sanctions program is a critical part of our approach to North Korea, not just unilaterally, but with our friends and allies. And again, your experience in Japan will make you a really important colleague in developing that. I
4: hope you'll commit to keeping this committee informed on a regular basis of your progress with sanctions. Yes. Thank you. Ms. Cleveland, I'd like to turn to you very quickly to raise an issue that um, is deeply important to me. It has to do with one of my constituents, one of my constituents that's suffering in the Japanese criminal justice system, uh, the so-called hostage justice system of Japan. Uh, Secretary Blinken is well aware of the problem. Many members of the State Department are and are working on this. Um, But I would encourage you and and ask that you take a hard look at all of the tools that the United States might implement to help Mr. Greg Kelly who has been trapped in the system for over three years uh, to to get him home, to get him released. Uh, This is a situation that uh, has bipartisan support by members of this committee which I very much appreciate and uh, it's something that uh, is greatly concerning to me and it's an injustice that's gone on for far too long and it damages our national interest uh, with one of our strongest allies, Japan and and America. So I would very much appreciate your commitment to take a very hard look at that.
8: Thank you, Senator, for raising this um, very important humanitarian concern. I would absolutely work with you in this committee to look into this. I am somewhat familiar with the difficulties with the Japanese criminal justice system and they are a matter of concern to me. Um, but I will certainly um, take great interest in the situation of Mr. Kelly.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, you Mr. Chairman. Several members have not been able to attend the hearing because of Senator, former Senator Reed's memorial. As a matter of fact, the chair himself is part of the uh, committee to receive Senator Reed in state. Uh, so uh, the chair and others will be submitting questions for the record. I would urge you to answer them fulsomely, fully, Uh, and expeditiously so that your nominations can be considered at a business hearing. Uh, And with that, and the thanks of the committee, this hearing is adjourned.